This episode is brought to you by the CBS All Access original series, The Good Fight. The Good Fight is back, and this season, the standard playbook goes out the window. Join the fight by watching the critically acclaimed legal drama now streaming exclusively on CBS All Access. Michael Sheen joins the cast this season as Roland Bloom, a brilliant, charismatic lawyer who's far more interested in winning than the niceties of following the law. Sheen joins fellow stars Christine Baranski, Kush Jumbo, Audra McDonald, Rose Leslie, Delroy Lindo, and so many more. Visit cbs.com slash womenrule to start your free trial of CBS All Access to stream all new episodes of The Good Fight today. When I'm playing a role and I'm the president of PBS, it's different. When I'm at a cocktail party, I can navigate it much easier when I'm coming as an individual person. And I think that there are more people in leadership roles that are actually introverts than I think people would expect. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Paula Kerger, the president and CEO of PBS, making her one of the most powerful people in the media industry, which is probably not something you expect to hear about someone who considers herself an introvert. Over the past 13 years as CEO, she's led PBS through a lot, from the rise of online streaming services to battles over government funding, to the Me Too movement, of sexual harassment allegations brought down one of PBS's biggest stars, Charlie Rose. I mean, I will never forget that day getting the call from the Washington Post, which is how I found out. And by the end of the day, he was no longer on public broadcasting. So, you know, it's funny. I've I've talked to people over the course of this last year, I'm sure you have as well, where, you know, you can almost feel the pendulum sliding a little bit further the other way where I've talked to, you know, men in leadership roles is like, well, I'm not going to mentor any women anymore. It's like, oh, come on. How many women were you mentoring before? Through it all, PBS has remained a place known in the industry for the number of women in meaningful leadership roles, both on camera and off. That's by design. And Kerger sees it as a fundamental component of PBS fulfilling its mission. It's purposeful. You know, it just doesn't happen. I want people that come from different perspectives and different ideas and different experiences because we are supposed to be a media organization that reflects the country. It's been very much a part of not just the, as one would say, the do-good part of our mission. It's part of the business. We're a better business because we're diverse. And now, here's my conversation with Paula Kerger. Well, Paula, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with some news today. President Trump's newly proposed 2020 budget, which would eliminate all federal funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting over two years. Can you tell us what those cuts would mean to PBS? So the uh, federal appropriation is the monies that come into public broadcasting that largely go to our stations. And so uh, when you look at the entire economy of public broadcasting, about 15% of the funding for our stations comes from federal appropriation, but that's an aggregate number. So a station like uh, WETA here in Washington, I think it's probably closer to 9% of their funding. For some of our stations in rural parts of the country, so Cookville, Tennessee, for example, it's probably about 40%. Wow. And so uh, when public broadcasting was was created, it was envisioned as a public-private partnership and that the federal appropriation was going to be particularly critical to ensure universal access, particularly to those 
that live in parts of the country that either have less people or that don't have an economic base to support a local media organization. And that's worked really well for all these years. So this is the third year. I mean, it probably didn't come as a surprise that the president uh, was going to propose these cuts. But I'm curious, why do you think PBS has such a target on its back? I wish I knew. You know, actually, um, because I spend most of my time on the road. Mm -hmm. I've been to every state except Hawaii. How stupid is that? I may (laughs) go this year, so then I can say all 50 states. But, you know, I see the impact our local stations have in communities, uh, red states, blue states. Uh, I see the work that our stations are doing advancing, you know, civil conversation. I am in places where local journalism has really collapsed and our local radio and and TV stations really are the local media presence. I see the work our stations are doing in classrooms. And I don't understand why we're, you know, we seem to be perennially in this fight. We have very strong support in the House and the Senate, both sides of the aisle. You know, people like Tom Cole, he's one of our biggest Mm -hmm. um, supporters. And I think in part because he knows what we've done in Oklahoma. So, you know, look, I've spent my whole life in the nonprofit sector, I've spent a lot of my time raising money, but the amount of time and effort that we put into going through this process every year that we're defunded is is huge and it comes at a cost. Um, look, I'm very sympathetic, very hard decisions to be made about where federal money should be spent. I don't think that it's inappropriate to scrutinize it every year, but to be in this battle every year is is really disappointing. So you spoke a little bit uh, to a nod of the money aspect, the fundraising aspect that uh, is, I'm sure, a large part of your job. How much energy and time revolves around development and fundraising? Well, increasing because uh, our whole uh, world, anyone in media, uh, really recognizes that this is not a time for the faint of heart. (laughs) Things are changing pretty rapidly. And when you think about the fact that we are maintaining a robust broadcast operation, which is something that we've always managed, and at the same time, we're also uh, making sure that not only our content, but the content of our stations uh, is available on every platform where people are looking for content. And that comes at a cost. You know, if you think about, you know, your own smartphone and every time you have an update, um, every time, you know, an app is updated, we have to uh, rebuild that and times two because we do it for both Apple platform and for Android. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also do it for kids and for general audience, of which we split out, you know, for the digital distribution, our content in both of those places. You know, so the the costs to um, to do the work that we aspire to do continue to increase. Federal appropriation has been flat for more than 10 years, probably further back than that, actually, if I went back and looked. You know, so philanthropy then becomes a bigger and bigger and more important piece of it. So I have spent some time raising money. I am spending more time raising <laughs> money. <laughs> we talk a lot on this um, podcast to women about raising money, whether it's their candidates, whether they're yeah. entrepreneurs, whether they're heads yeah. of um, you know massive organizations like PBS. And it often fundamentally is one of the hardest things that they don't like to do. They struggle with. What's your approach to that aspect of your job? Do you have any piece of advice? I do, actually. So I have uh, been involved in raising money since I got out of school. My first job uh, actually was working here in Washington for UNICEF. And I uh, I had gotten a, 
degree in business, not really knowing that I wanted to work in business. I had sort of a checkered college career, started out thinking I wanted to be a doctor, flunked organic chemistry, took a lot of humanities classes because I loved them, panicked I'd never be able to leave home because I'd never be gainfully employed, got a business degree, no real sense what I'd do with it, started looking for jobs in the one ads in newspapers, found a job working for UNICEF uh, here in Washington. And I never thought the nonprofit sector was a place where you worked. I thought it was just what you did. I didn't think you actually could work in that sector. And my first job was raising money. And so I did it for, I've done it now for many years. And there are people that say what you just said, oh, this is so difficult. This is so unpleasant. But I always think about it as being really like the ultimate matchmaking job because people have aspirations in their life of things that they want to accomplish. And some they do through their professional life and some they do through their volunteer and philanthropic uh, work. I think those that are fundraisers are really just helping people match up the things that are important in their lives to the organizations that really make a difference. We talked about your your kind of rise in the professional career, but I want to take a little bit further step back. Uh, you grew up outside of Baltimore in a somewhat rural area. I think you've said before that while growing up, you didn't even have a library, only a bookmobile. Right. Which probably you have You have done research on me. <laughs> <laughs> in that sort of environment, what role did media, especially TV and radio, kind of play in your childhood? It was huge because so much of what I saw and experienced uh, was through television. And, you know, my earliest memories do not involve public television, actually. I remember watching I Love Lucy on, in reruns. I'm not that, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Um, on, on television, like sitting really close to the TV set, my mother always yelling at me, sit back, sit back. And, you know, so I, you know, I always think that my earliest role model was Lucille Ball, you know, for all the, the good and bad of that show, you know. And um, so, so much of my perspective on the world and actually, you know, as a woman, so much of my perspective actually was shaped from television. So, you know, I was as a, as a slightly older child, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show. I mean, you know, she was a professional woman. She wasn't relying on a husband. She was making it on her own. And, and it's so I think there's sort of that perspective, but also my introduction to a wider world came from what I saw on television. You know, my family used to watch, you know, Masterpiece Theater on, on Sundays. And so that was an important part of my life growing up. So much of the things that I love today, I'm very interested in, in the arts came to me through listening to the radio watching television. You know, we occasionally would go downtown to see a theater performance. We rarely came to Washington because when I grew up, the difference between Baltimore and Washington was huge. Yeah. You know, I remember when we came here, it was like a really big expedition. I had a good public school education where I had art and music. And then I had what I saw on public television. That was really how I experienced music and dance and art and all of that, not having the opportunity to see it and experience it live. How does that, the importance of TV and opening up what you just described, these new worlds of influence, does, how does that influence the way you approach your job today? It, it's, it's actually pretty fundamental because I think a lot about, again, my own experience growing up. You know, without that, you know, I think about, well, what would my life be like? And now I think about what's going on in, in arts education in schools I think about what, you know, children that live in different parts of the country that either, 
you know, for geography or actually for economic reasons, just don't have access. And so I want children that are watching public broadcasting to see their own stories and their own experiences reflected. And I think there's so much that um, is not as, as many opportunities as there are for people to experience media. There are so many stories that just aren't told. So in the past, you've described yourself as an introvert. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> cocktail <laughs> parties are the worst. <laughs> like if you ever see me in a cocktail party, I'm usually finding the one person that I can have the conversation with. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> we don't imagine introverts as the CEO putting on a CEO hat of major organizations. How do you navigate what you just described, you know, that all of us have been at those parties where you're just trying to find the one person you know. So, yeah. you, you know, you're not kind of sweating in the corner. Correct. Having to make, you know, awkward conversation. Right. Because it's I'm playing a role, right? And so it's easier for me, and and I I don't even remember who helped me to find this um, path, but it it's it really has made a huge difference in my in my life. Is that when I'm playing a role, when I'm the president of PBS, it's different. When I'm at a cocktail party, I can navigate it much easier when I'm coming as an individual person. And I think that there are more people in leadership roles that are actually introverts than I think people would expect. And if you, you know, see me in public and, you know, I seem outgoing and so forth, it's, it's not that I'm, that's a fake Paula. I mean, I am an outgoing person. It's just that. I have a, a piece of me that holds back. But when I'm the president of PBS, it's much easier. And I think that introverts, I think we tend to listen more carefully because we're not as focused on, you know, the outward part of ourselves. And I think that we tend to be more reflective. And I think people um, like me end up in, in roles like this uh, because of those aspects of our personality. And then we just mask the other stuff really, really well. Do you think some of those traits that kind of we inherently think of as being CEO like because for so often men were CEOs? Yeah, I you know, I I I think about this a lot. I mean, people are sometimes surprised when they meet me and and they and when and then when they find out I'm the president of PBS because I don't know what people think a CEO is, mm-hmm. but I I have always tried to manage my professional life. Well, I, I should say in the later years. I think when we're young, we all do you know, the things that we do. I used to wear my hair pulled back so I'd look older and, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, I think as we get um, more evolved in in our careers, I've always found it's just much easier to be yourself. And I, I always tell kids, you know, find your authentic voice and then just use it. Think about what are the things that, are, that really make you sing. And those are the things that you should try to focus on. Don't try to be something you're not. Don't try to emulate the way men would do something. Just, you know, I think that I think some people have in their mind uh, an idea of what a CEO is. I'm pretty approachable. I, I'm a hugger. And it's just it's who I am. And I think if I tried to be anything else, um, it, it just wouldn't ring true to me. And I think as there are more and more women in C-suite roles, I think as there are more and more different types of people in C-suite roles, then maybe um, that expectation of what a CEO looks like or sounds like or, um, it, you know, will, will shift. You said that leadership isn't for everyone. Nope. Figuring out what your passion is can be a complicated thing. How did you realize that leadership was right for you? Yeah, um, I think it was a process. Um, as I worked through my professional career, I didn't dream that I was going to be a leader. I just 
was always looking for interesting opportunities to explore. I had some great mentors mm -hmm. that uh, helped me really see the kinds of things that I was capable of doing and uh, gave me the confidence to approach jobs with greater and greater responsibility. There is something about leadership which is is related to um, also good teamwork. You know, again, as I, I said before, I think listening skills are hugely important. I think being comfortable and contributing in your own ideas. But I think leadership also involves uh, an ability to be confident in being alone. Uh, because particularly when you rise into a, a top-level job, the number of people that you can really talk about, talk to about uh, with issues and so forth really begins to shrink. And um, you have to be comfortable in that. We'll be right back after this message. This episode is brought to you by the CBS All Access original series, The Good Fight. Tired of standing idly by on the sidelines while the world goes crazy? Diane Lockhart is... And so is the cast of the critically acclaimed legal drama, The Good Fight. Join the fight by streaming the new season exclusively on CBS All Access. Tune in to see if Diane Lockhart will lead the resistance in a new post-factual world, where the lawyers with the best stories triumph over the lawyers with the best facts. Plus, Michael Sheen joins the cast this season as Roland Bloom, a brilliant, charismatic lawyer who's far more interested in winning than the niceties of following the law. New characters, new ripped-from-the-headline plots, a dynamic cast, and so much more. This season, the standard playbook goes out the window. Join the fight by heading over to cbs.com slash womenrule to start your free trial of CBS All Access. That's cbs.com slash womenrule. How did you decide to throw your hat in the ring in 2005 when this PBS CEO? Oh, yeah, that's a great story. Because <laughs> uh, I didn't want this job. <laughs> I was, uh, I was working in, uh, in New York. I was the uh, CEO, COO and general manager of WNET, our station in New York. I love that job. I assumed I was going to spend the rest of my life in New York. I assumed that my next job was going to be the CEO. I really wasn't interested in in um, in moving back to Washington, the Washington area. And uh, a couple people uh, reached out to me and said, "You know, you are really the right person for this job leading PBS. I know how complicated this organization is. This is a federated organization. Our stations are independent. They all have their own leadership. They all really map their own destiny. PBS itself is the organization that enables everything at scale for their benefit. So I have a lot of responsibility, not ultimate authority over a lot of the things that we do. Um, and I knew how complicated it was, but I also felt that PBS was at a critical uh, place. Mm -hmm. I agreed to meet with the search committee only because I wanted to tell them what I thought they should be looking for. <laughs> When you prepare for an interview, you have to push yourself in the job. And you really have to think about if you were doing this job, how you would handle it. And so I put all the energy into that. I met with the search committee. It was a very large search committee. I was the first person they interviewed, so they didn't even have the rhythm of how they were going to talk to me. And when I, and I even got into not, a, I wouldn't say an argument, but a back and forth with one of the search committee members. And when I walked out, I thought, wow. Maybe I should do this job. So I stayed in the process and um, and then was ultimately hired. So 
was a surprise to me. <laughs> <laughs> One thing and I now, th- 13 years later, here I am still. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's been a good run. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I think is pretty striking about PBS uh, is the number of women in meaningful leadership roles, both on camera and off. Why do you think PBS has been so successful at cultivating that talent? And why is it important? It's purposeful. You know, it just doesn't happen. I think that part of it is there's been a lot of women in leadership roles. And I think that it, um, I think that's been uh, very helpful. And look, a lot of our stations were actually put on the air by women. If you go back 50 years, uh, where many of our stations came on the air, many of our stations came into being because women recognize that this was a powerful educational tool for their families and their communities. And then 50 years ago, there was a little series called Sesame Street, and people started hearing about it, and they wanted it. And so I think our roots go all the way back to women. But I think speaking just for PBS for a moment, we compete uh, with a lot of media organizations and a lot of organizations that could pay a lot more than we can. And the way that I think we compete is that we are a place that appreciate the contributions of all the people that work here. We work very hard on areas like parental leave and and flexible work time and so forth so that people can come in and out. And if you look at the reasons that women sometimes drop out of, you know, the path of increasing leadership, it's sometimes for those very fundamental reasons of just not having right. that kind of flexibility. So I think it's been a part of the of the culture here of really supporting both men and women, by the way, in uh, in their professional development. And, you know, when we do hires, um, you know, we look at diversity in, in every sense of that word in building um, the teams of the people that come here. When I we work on a project and we put people around a table, I want people that come from different perspectives and different ideas and different experiences because that helps us shape the work because we are supposed to be a media organization that reflects the country. So I think it's been very much a part of not just the, as one would say, the do-good part of our mission. It's part of the business. We're a better business because we're diverse. I'm curious, uh, the whole country's been kind of dealing with the Me Too uh, As we issue. have as an organization. And I want to ask about that. Um, mm-hmm. PBS was rocked uh, along with the media world with Charlie Rose, of course, who had a talk show on PBS, as did Tavis Smiley. How did you react when you heard about allegations about them? Did you do anything organizationally? Yes. I mean, I look, I've, I've thought that we had um, a lot of good practices in place. And, and again, we've just been talking about the number of, of women that work. I mean, we have a majority women in this organization. Um, but, you know, we work with a lot of independent producers. And I think that, you know, we assume that our values are clear to them. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a line of sight. And look, I've known Charlie Rose for years. He started at WNET the same as a national show, the same week that I started in public Mm -hmm. broadcasting. So I've known him for many, many years. Um, but you know, we, uh, we didn't have a line of sight into his production business. And I want to be clear that, you know, there are limitations of what we can do when we're not running the HR for all of the organizations that we work with. On the other hand, that doesn't absolve us of a responsibility. And so, uh, we've spent a lot of time since the whole circumstance with Charlie. I mean, we moved very quickly uh, when we um, realized, I mean, I will never forget that day getting the call from the Washington Post 
which is how I found out calling me to say, we're running a story today and we have three questions we want to ask you. Um, do you syndicate a show? What really trying to understand the, the business relationship right. between PBS and, and Charlie Rose? Do you run as HR? And have you ever had a complaint? Those were the three questions. And, um, you know, by the, um, by the end of the day, he was no longer on public broadcasting. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, you know, we are spending time now working with our producers, making sure that they understand, you know, what we expect. We, we've always had, um, a whistleblower, uh, hotline here. We really reinforce it with our, with our uh, employees. And, uh, we're looking for opportunities to really think about, education as much as anything else, you know, because also, you know, it's funny, I've, I've talked to people over the course of this last year, I'm sure you have as well, where, you know, you can almost feel the pendulum, you know, sliding a little bit further the other way where I've talked to, you know, men in leadership roles is like, well, I'm not going to mentor any women anymore. Right. It's like, oh, come on, how many women were you mentoring before? But, um, but I think that, there is a, a whole level of conversation that we just have never really had. And as as a woman of an age where I have seen a lot of things in my professional life and experienced things, you know, that really are not okay. And I think, you know, we need to be more engaged in conversations about what is appropriate and how do we create work environments where people can do their best work. I imagine Charlie Rose was a very loved person on for a long time uh, on public television. Do people come up and say they miss him to you ever? You know, it's it's still I get calls from people or I talk to people again because I, I travel quite a bit that um, people will say to me, did you really need to, you know, fire him? Did you really need to end mm-hmm. the show? You know, and I explain what happened. And at the end, they say, oh, yeah. And it's surprising, you know, when I say this, I think people might assume that it's men and it's frankly more women that say the same thing to me. You know, we really miss Charlie Rose. Having said that, I think people love Christiane. You know, she was at the top of our list. So I'm thrilled that, you know, that she's now on public broadcasting. I'll ask you one last question. Uh, You've been CEO now for 13 years. A lot has changed as we talked about the landscape and media. But PBS continues to have a reputation for civility and fairness, another issue that we're obviously dealing with as a society. Uh, Those values seem threatened now. Going forward, what do you see as PBS's role? The late, great Gwen Ifill used to say often, our job is to bring light, not heat, to the conversation. And I really take that so much to heart. I think that people are hungering to have meaningful conversation and particularly about the significant issues of our time. And they ha- we have to create platforms for that conversation to happen. And part of it is around the sharing of information and really distinguishing, you know, fact from point of view. And if we can focus on having honest conversation where we can truly talk to one another, I think that is really at the, at the heart of how our democracy was founded. And I think if we are only do that, I think is a, is a huge effort towards bringing civility back to conversation so that we truly listen to one another and look for those areas of, of common purpose so that we can make the kind of decisions to build the communities in which we want to live. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Our booker is Jessica Andrews. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 